All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 201, East Anglia's Dane Geld. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a decent pint per month. Or, if you drink cocktails, it is so much cheaper than drinking cocktails these days. And thank you very much to Ansel, Saskia, and Ida. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not making this up. Ida now supports independent history podcasts. That's one more check off my bucket list. So here we are, with a new king in Wessex. King Athelred, son of Athelwolf, was now sitting the throne. He was in his 20s, and despite having a large family back when he was a child, now his family was pretty small. He had his wife, Queen Wolfthrith, and good on you, Wolfthrith, for insisting on being given the title of queen. But other than that, we don't know much about her. But the fact that she was listed as queen, and what her name was, has led some scholars to suspect that she was Mercian. You'll remember that the Mercians were a bit less restrictive on women in power than their southern cousins in Wessex. Anyway, so, out of a once massive family, Athelred now just had his wife, his two sons, Athelhelm and Athelwald, his sister, who was far away and married to the king of Mercia, and his little brother, Alfred. Virtually everyone else in his family was dead. So things weren't looking very good for King Athelred and his family. Sure, he had managed to navigate his way around a dynastic issue with his brother Alfred, and avoiding civil war is always a good thing. But Christmases in Wessex were probably starting to get a bit lonely. And to make matters worse, in the eastern part of his kingdom, on the Isle of Thanet, there was an encampment that was held by what the chroniclers called a Mikkel Hera, a great army. A great army, by the way, that had already ravaged the east despite being paid a Danegeld, and might have even been involved in the previous King of Wessex's death, King Athelbert, brother of King Athelred. Notably, the Chronicle fails to give us a sense of scale for this army. Usually in circumstances like this, we're told of the number of ships, right? But not this time. Instead, the army was just spoken about in grandiose terms. We're told that it was large. We're told that it was great. And that's a bit strange. And it gives us the impression that the great heathen army was vastly superior to anything that they'd seen to date. And keep in mind that in 851, we were told about a fleet of 350 ships sailing up the Thames and causing all manner of havoc. Even if we discount those numbers for exaggeration, that was still a very large fleet and the scribes were comfortable putting a number to it. But the great heathen army, not so much for them. And the cause for the deficit in the record could be benign and meaningless. But the fact that they talk about how massive this army was, and we will see how overwhelmingly effective they'll turn out to be, gives the impression that this was an army that numbered in the many thousands, and that the scribes didn't put a number of ships down because there were simply too many to count. Scholars suspect that we're looking at an army that was over 5,000 people. And in a time when warfare was still a lot like gang warfare, this was an overwhelming force. I've been trying to find an allegory to help illustrate this, 
but I'm honestly failing to find anything that can beat the cold hard numbers. Typically, the wars of the Anglo-Saxons probably involved no more than around 250 people aside. When you imagine Penda and Raidwald and Oswiu, these big battles that we've talked about, we're dealing with small special forces. And then suddenly, along comes an army that likely had at least 20 times that number. Can you imagine that? Now sure, the Anglo-Saxons could call their levies, what they called the Ferd, which basically means the adventure or the expedition. But the Ferd were just lightly armed freemen, basically just farmers with spears. And that would bolster their numbers somewhat. But what they were facing wasn't just random conscripts who didn't know which end of the spear to use. Many of these warriors that were serving in the Danish army would have been professional soldiers, just like the Werod. Except for every one member of the Werod, there could be as many as 20 of these heavily armed and experienced Danes. Something else we're not told is where this army came from. Sure, we have the sagas that say they were the sons of Ragnar, but those are notoriously unreliable. And even if they were being led by the so-called sons of Ragnar, where did their forces come from? A massive Vikinger fleet doesn't just manifest out of thin air. Not even if it's being led by the guy who killed the dreg cow Sibylia. So where did all these experienced warriors come from? Well, as you might remember, many of these crews tended to be multicultural, picking up warriors from all over the place, provided, of course, that they were skilled and willing. So even though the sources speak of Danes, heathens, pagans, and Vikings... We're probably looking at an army that drew from all over the place, spoke a variety of languages, and worshipped a variety of gods. Some of their numbers, even in these early days, very well might have even been Christians. Something else to consider is how these armies operated. Remember when we were talking about what was happening on the continent, and how there were these two big Vikinger armies that were operating in Francia, and how Charles paid one to fight the other? but then they ended up joining forces for a while instead. And then they broke up after they started losing and ended up hiring themselves out to various nobles throughout Europe, with some even joining different sides of the same war. Well, that was happening all throughout Europe. The West was awash with heavily armed, highly experienced mercenaries who would join armies and leave armies based entirely on their own self-interest. And the strength of a captain or a Vikinger king, seemed to be contingent upon his ability to bring success. So knowing that, if you have a successful leader, or even multiple successful leaders, they might be able to bring a large fleet of individual bands together under a single banner. You know, maybe it's best if we don't think about this like an army, where there's a set term and a sense of obligation. But instead, maybe we should think about it more like a mutual fund or an investment portfolio. You basically have a bunch of people individually buying a piece of Sons of Ragnar LLC. And sometimes they buy it as part of a larger group. But at any point, they might withdraw and cash out. And it's entirely possible that the reason why this army grew so big was over simple momentum. Everyone else was signing on, so you don't want to be the only pirate in Europe to miss out on this opportunity. And then... Once the army starts doing well, it gains even more attention, and even more people want to join in. 
It makes sense, right? But it leaves you with a question, too. Why Britain? Why come here? Well, for one very simple reason. Frankia had finally gotten it together, and it wasn't an attractive target anymore. Charles was constructing defenses and paying as much as 4,000 pounds of silver to get these armies to vacate. It was time to go. But just because Frankia was closing down didn't mean that the Vikinger bands needed to retire. They just headed to greener pastures. And the disunity of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the fact that other bands had already found success there in the past made Britain the obvious choice. So it's no surprise that you had a big army landing in Thanet, and then what looks like large numbers coming in to support them in the years to follow. In fact, according to Abel's, that's exactly what they did, and the raiders that were pushed out of Francia simply crossed the channel and joined the great heathen army. And why not? It seems that many of them thought to themselves, damn it, I've got skills, and I'll be damned if I'm just going to pack up and go back to the frozen north. So all of this would have led to the growth of numbers that we hear hints of. But something else to remember is what life was like in Britain during this period. We're talking about a time when there was massive downward social mobility. Almost everybody was doing worse than their parents. And there was little to no opportunity for the vast majority of people in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to move upward. This was so bad that even lesser nobles were feeling the pinch. And in circumstances like that, if you were a local who was effective in battle and you could find a captain who was willing to sign you on, the opportunities that were presented by these highly successful mercenaries might have been quite a draw for you. I mean, sure, you could stick around and get conscripted by your local lord to fight this army of nigh-unstoppable killing machines just so you could have the chance to go back to your life living on the edge of starvation. Or... You could join them, and if you and your crew do well, you could end up with your own plot of land. Or maybe even something better. And this isn't just mere postulation on my part. Mutiny, flipping sides, and general disloyalty was a significant problem for the Anglo-Saxons during this period. And when you look at the situation that their society created for the vast bulk of their population, you can start to see why. I love how the scribes and nobles were looking to the heavens and asking why this was happening to them, as if this was a supernatural event. It wasn't. It was a chain reaction, and with our perspective over a thousand years later, we can see how it all came about. There was a pre-existing risk of the north sparking up due to raiding culture that was already present. And then the leaders like Charlemagne ignited the tinderbox by doing things like massacring thousands of unarmed Saxons. Then, rather than tamping down the flames, the West continued to engage in provocative actions which poured fuel onto the fire. And it wasn't long before the self-interested nobles of Western Europe began hiring these bands, which was pretty much like dumping kerosene on the flames. And then, when they really didn't like what they were building, they pushed it west. And meanwhile, the Anglo-Saxon nobility had created the perfect storm of social incentives that made fighting against it incredibly difficult. In fact, the way their kingdoms organized made them particularly vulnerable to this sort of threat. And so in the end, when you're reading these records, you find yourself saying, 
Oh, come on, Athling Unferth. This isn't happening to you. You and your European allies did this. In many ways, this is your chickens coming home to roost. However, that would have been cold comfort to the new King Athelred, who was looking eastward and trying to decide what to do with this massive Vikinger encampment that was holding Thanet. At any moment, they could pour forth once more into his lands. And don't forget that they'd already been paid a Dane Guild. And afterwards, they'd successfully raided the wealthy eastern settlements. So this was a glorious and successful army. And word of that was almost certainly spreading. So, how likely do you think it would have been that other enterprising Vikinger crews would have been looking to get in on this while the getting was good? I'm thinking they would have. And according to the sparse records that we have, their numbers were indeed starting to swell. And you might be thinking that King Athelred might be able to turn to Mercia for support. After all, they were their closest neighbors, and the two dynasties were closely linked thanks to the marriage of King Burgred of Mercia to King Athelred's sister, Athelswitha. Not only that, but the dynasties were possibly linked a second time through King Athelred's own marriage to Queen Wolfthrith. Dynastically, these two kingdoms were becoming quite close. However, it seems that in the same year that King Athelred was staring down the barrel of the great heathen army, so in 865, King Burgred of Mercia was nowhere to be seen. And it's thought that was because he might have had his own troubles to contend with. Maybe. According to Kirby, King Burgred of Mercia was waging a war against King Rodri the Great of Gwyneth. To support this assertion, Kirby cited the fragmentary Irish annals. Though this is something that gives me pause because I can't find any entry in those annals to support his contention. But the reason why I'm including it here is because I generally do find Kirby to be reliable. And also, because sometimes there are different versions or translations and he might have been working from one of them. And because frankly, war with Gwyneth seems entirely plausible based upon what was happening politically. The thing is that while Gwyneth had submitted to King Burgred about a decade earlier, stuff had changed and there were plenty of developments that would have given King Burgred cause to worry. The fact of the matter is that the kingdom of Gwyneth was on the rise the new dynasty, which was established under Murfin Firk Abguiriad, was proving to be politically potent. King Murfin had deep ties into a variety of British kingdoms, being that he was from the royal line of Poes, with ancestral lines to the Manx, and his father had married the daughter of King Kinnadap Rogery of Gwyneth. So Murfin was proving to be a dynastic powerhouse who could unite a big portion of the region. And then he married Nest the sister of King Kinganap Cadal of Poes. And at that point it was sealed. Under Murfin, Gwyneth had acquired a claim to their southern neighbor of Poes. And then King Murfin had a son, Rodri. And once Rodri became king, he began to be known as Rodri Mauer, Rodri the Great. And for obvious reasons, Rodri was astoundingly effective. This was the same king who had successfully beaten back the Viking incursions into Wales so well that they don't appear to have gone any further than Anglesey during his rule. 
He was a powerhouse, and it was under his direction, or maybe under his son's direction, that the kingdom of Gwyneth moved to annex their southern neighbor of Poes. He was also looking to expand his borders through political marriage with the other Welsh kingdoms. Rodri was on the rise. So King Burgred might have had a good reason to want to fight King Rodri and also take the Isle of Anglesey, as Kirby claims he did, because that would have been a powerful signal to the resurgent kingdom that they were still a client kingdom of Mercia. However, based upon the records I've gotten my hands on, I can't find any primary sources for that campaign. So until I find another source, preferably a primary source, this will just have to be mentioned as a theory offered up by D.P. Kirby. Regardless, though, something important to know is that it doesn't matter whether or not King Burgred was campaigning in the West. What's clear from the records of Mercian history from this period is that they were militarily potent, and they were not to be underestimated. But they were also either unable or unwilling to assist the West Saxons with this recent Vikinger threat. So this was a bad situation that was threatening to get worse. Not exactly the best way for the new King Athelred to start his reign. But, against all odds, King Athelred got a bit of good news. There was a burst of activity in the Vikinger camp on Thanet. And it wasn't that they were preparing to march into Kent. It seems that the northern raiders were loading up their longships and preparing to leave these lands, bound for somewhere. This was a much-needed respite for the West Saxons. But it was 865, and King Athelred of Wessex's good fortune was turning out to be King Edmund of East Anglia's misfortune, because the Northmen weren't planning on going far. They simply loaded up their longships, crossed the Thames estuary, and marched into East Anglia. The scribe Athelweird tells us a hundred years later that the invasion consisted of, quote, the fleets of the tyrant Ivor, end quote, as in Ivor the Boneless, the purported son of Ragnar Lothbrok. Most scholars believe that this was the same person that the Irish were calling King Imar of Dublin, and he had been the scourge of that land since at least 857. Ivor struck terror into the hearts of all who knew of him. Now, with regard to his bonelessness, we still don't know what that really signified. Some sources say that it was because he was disinterested in sex and possibly impotent. Others say that there was something wrong with his legs. It's something that we just don't know. But the efficacy of Vikinger junk aside, I'm guessing the big question you're asking is why would King Ivor and the great heathen army go to East Anglia. After all, while they did have a mint over there, it wasn't exactly Mercia or Wessex. East Anglia was something of a backwater, and it didn't have access to a town on the scale of London or Canterbury. When push comes to shove, East Anglia was a minor player in British politics. But while East Anglia might not be as rich as some of the other regions, it was an excellent staging ground. It's close to the channel. It was notoriously hard to invade because of how difficult it was to cross most of the fens. And if you wanted to establish a staging ground where you could safely hold your position, gather your forces, and prepare your next move, 
you could do much worse than East Anglia. And it seems that the Northmen had learned a great deal from their decades of experience on the continent. Now, for quite some time, we've been seeing the scale of these raiders expanding. And we have seen them operating in large numbers on the continent, and occasionally in Britain as well. But the overall sense that you got from these Vikinger bands was one of individual pirates seeking out their own goals without a plan of anything larger. However, with the arrival of the great heathen army into East Anglia, we've reached a new phase in the Viking Age. They were no longer a marauding band of anarchists. They were willing to form into a coordinated army that had an eye on strategy. Vikinger culture had evolved. Did it come from taking territory in Dublin? Did it come from operating in large numbers on the continent? It's hard to say, but things had changed. Now, typically, pop culture displays the great heathen army in a way that feels a bit like Conan the Barbarian or Mad Max. But while the actual composition of the army could fluctuate, and if things went badly, it could break up, while the great heathen army was operating in the field, it appears to have been very well disciplined. After all, these were experienced and hardened warriors who had likely fought in many battles with their shipmates. So not only was this army under the command of one of the most feared Vikinger kings in the West, it was also operating in enormous numbers, and they were disciplined enough to organize a large-scale invasion of East Anglia. Could you imagine the terror that the 25-year-old King Edmund of East Anglia would have experienced when he received words of the Drakars, the famed longships, crossing the Thames estuary? And then how he must have felt when he heard of the other ships that were coming across the channel. He had sat on the throne for nearly half of his life, first becoming king at the age of 14 when the previous king, who was probably his father, had died. But in his 11 years of rule, he had never seen anything like this. No one had. This was a fleet of unimaginable size, carrying professional warriors who had seen countless battles and many of which had probably been involved in the fights that brought mighty Francia and the grandson of Emperor Charlemagne to their knees. And they were being led by a king who had long experience with conquering his foes and who had seized large portions of Ireland. And what did King Edmund have? His hearth were odd? Maybe a few supporting were-odds from his eldermen who remained at his side? He certainly wouldn't have time to raise a full third. The Danes had come too quickly for that. He would be hopelessly outnumbered even if he could raise those levies. But if he couldn't? Just a small detachment of these pirates would be likely enough to overwhelm his forces. If you were King Edmund, what would you do? If you fought, you'd probably die, as would your forces. And what good would that do to anyone? So, he did what most of Europe was doing in situations like this. He decided he would buy peace with these foreigners. And messengers were dispatched with instructions to come to terms for a Dane guild. We don't know what the specific terms were, but based upon the going rate we would be looking at thousands of pounds of gold and silver. And that would have pushed East Anglia to the breaking point. Sure, it might have saved the monasteries from being looted and sacked. But the price of the Dane Guild probably still effectively looted the rest of the country 
and simply saved them from having this army physically coming in and taking their stuff directly, and likely enslaving a good portion of the countryside while they were at it. After all, these guys were prolific slavers. But the Dane Guild wasn't just for gifts of gold and silver. They also demanded that King Edmund provide them food, drink, and even supply them with horses. The demand for horses is interesting, and it gives us another hint at the evolution of Vikinger culture. They were clearly planning for something, and mobility would be central to it. Now, typically, their longships provided the needed mobility for their rapid strikes throughout the known world. But that being said, they could only conduct these lightning strikes on settlements that were near navigable waters. But horses... That suggests that they were expanding their list of targets and were evolving beyond a sea-based force and forming what we would likely call today combined operations. Once they had these horses, they could attack by land and sea with frightening speed. So an Anglo-Saxon kingdom couldn't simply look to the seas and prepare their defenses. Building bridges to block rivers and setting up watchmen along the shores would not be enough. Because at the blink of an eye, they could be facing off with thousands of Vikingers arriving deep inland behind their defenses like they were the f***ing men of Rohan, and virtually nobody would see them coming. Only one year into this, and we're already moving into a new phase of the war. Now typically, a Danegeld would be paid in exchange for the invading forces leaving your lands in peace. But despite receiving gifts, supplies, and horses, the Danes remained in East Anglia for the rest of the year. My suspicion is that this delay was because it took King Edmund a great deal of time to acquire the provisions and horses necessary to pay off King Ivor. So the great heathen armies simply waited in East Anglia and gathered ever greater numbers to their banner. Now for them, it wasn't all that much of a hardship. Frankly, it was to their benefit because they could plan their next move and wait for word of their recent victory over East Anglia to reach the continent, which would likely gain the attention of additional Vikinger captains and crews. So, they were probably telling King Edmund to take all the time he needed. And they probably did need time to plan, because the demand for horses in their Danegeld suggests that settlement within East Anglia was not their immediate goal. They were looking elsewhere so scouts would need to be dispatched, and battle plans would need to be drawn up. But consider what this delay and the Danegeld would have meant for the people of East Anglia. The vast majority of these people were peasant farmers who would have been living on the edge, just one bad harvest away from starvation. And now their king had promised food, provisions, gifts, and horses. And it wasn't like King Edmund had a stable of horses, gold, and food just waiting to be handed over to the Danes. And even if he had reserves like that, how likely do you think he would be to pay it outright from his own coffers? Do you really think he'd be willing to go hungry? No. He was an Anglo-Saxon king. He'd pay with his other possessions. Namely, the stuff that he allowed his subjects to use. After all, unless you held bookland... Everything you owned was his when it came down to it. So suddenly, the eldermen would be told that they needed to provide a certain amount of food, gold, silver, and horses to the king. But do you think that the eldermen were willing to go hungry and hand over all of their own possessions? 
No. They would just turn to their landowning churls and demand that they provide the necessary material. They might also mark up those demands. Don't forget the raw opportunism that things like this tended to create. We've already seen other examples of nobles seeking to use this type of chaos to consolidate wealth and power. There's no reason to think they wouldn't do it here as well. But the churls who got these demands were not likely to want to go hungry either. So they would just turn to their tenant farmers who were working the land and demand that they provide what was needed. And what do you think the tenant farmers and the assorted slaves, what the Anglo-Saxons called theos, would do? Well, they had to pay it. It was either that or they could end up evicted or worse. And frankly, an eviction was pretty much as good as a death sentence. Don't forget how xenophobic and economically locked down this era was. They couldn't just move into the suburbs and apply for a job as a barista. So they would have to bend to whatever demands were being placed upon them, no matter how arduous. If a farmer had a horse, even if it was all he had, he would have to give it over. If they had any riches, meager as they would have been, those would have to go too. And as for food, that definitely would need to go. The king, the eldermen, and some of the other well-positioned nobles might have been able to avoid the hardships of this Danegeld, but as for the rest of the kingdom, they would have to pay. And so, even if they started out in 865 with a surplus, these farmers were now likely on the brink of starvation, or actively in the depths of it. And if 864 had been a bad harvest, I would imagine that these families would be unable to absorb the extra burden and would have died of starvation. And I really hate how sanitary and academic that sounds. Saying things like, oh yeah, this was tough, and the peasants would have starved. Like it's a footnote, something minor to be included, even if it's mentioned at all. But think about what this meant. These were real people. They had feelings just like you and I. They were human beings, and what they experienced was every bit as real as your life is today. And death by starvation isn't quick. It's not clean. So imagine what they would have felt. Put yourself in their shoes. For weeks, you would know that death was coming. You would be watching your loved ones wasting away. You'd become accustomed to the cries of your children and your partner, as their bodies were racked with hunger pains. People in this stage sometimes eat grass, leather if it's available, or even just dirt. Anything in an effort to stave off the hunger pangs. But unless some sustenance was found, your bodies would burn through the majority of their fat reserves and start devouring their own muscles for fuel until there is little left. And at that stage, even the cells would begin to degenerate and eventually, the cries for food and the panic would come to an end. You and your family would be so weak that you become listless and apathetic. Some of you might begin to become terribly ill from disease as your immune system is shut down. But after weeks of suffering, what little was left of you that was still conscious would know that death was right around the corner, and you might start to watch your loved ones die in front of you. Or you might be the lucky one and be the first to go. But all the while, you would know that there was nothing you could do to stop it. 
That's the circumstance that many of those at the bottom of the economic scale would have experienced as a result of this invasion and the payment of the Danegeld. And even if you were lucky and had a surplus to draw from, what would you do if you knew that your neighbor had a bad harvest? Would you share what was left of your surplus to help them through the year, even though you knew that it might put your own family's survival in danger? You might be able to survive a year eating only a meal and a half per day, but could your young child? What if you or your spouse was pregnant? It would have been a living nightmare for many people in East Anglia. And it doesn't end there. Even if you're one of the lucky ones who was able to absorb the burden of the Danegeld, maybe you're a part of the wealth class that lived in or near the population centers you still had the issue of where the great heathen army was staying. We don't have any record of what happened there. We don't know if they made their own camp or if they seized an existing settlement and set up shop. Later on, we will see them take over buildings and use them as strongholds. And they might have done something similar here. They might have even taken over somewhere like Ipswich simply because they could. And don't forget that their numbers were swelling while they stayed. So their demands for provisions likely expanded as the year went on, further burdening the kingdom. And I find it very hard to believe that an army of ruthless mercenaries was entirely well behaved while they stayed there. So on top of all of these burdens, you also have the threat of theft, assault, and murder hanging over everybody. The strain that this was placing upon the population of East Anglia would have made the Colonial Quartering Act look like a friendly picnic in comparison. And the Quartering Act was a major cause for the American Revolution. And it makes me wonder what sort of actions King Edmund, his eldermen, and his werods were taking to enforce compliance. Because think about it. In a situation like this, if you were a tenant farmer... If you were staring at the possibility of complete starvation, with an angry churl telling you that you had to provide food that you didn't have, otherwise you'd be evicted, would you really care that the churl was in a similar situation with the elderman that he served? Would that really matter to you? Or would you start to think that maybe this king wasn't worth it? Would you start to look at that Vikinger army and think to yourself, they're eating pretty well over there, and once they leave... They'll likely invade somewhere and take it over. And maybe, if I go with them, I can have some land that's all my own, rather than having to spend the rest of my life farming a small strip of land for my greedy landlord. Would you be tempted to trade in your plowshare for a sword? I think I would. And based upon the record, it appears there were plenty of Anglo-Saxons who were feeling that same temptation. After all, why protect a system that does nothing for you? I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. All right. Well, I think that was probably the darkest episode I've ever done. But if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. Frankly, we're everywhere. And you can find links to all our communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey.